I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. We recorded this interview prior to our lives shifting dramatically in reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. Please note that context when listening to this conversation with John Connolly, our fellow Bostonian who works every day on issues of education to benefit the needs of our most underserved families. Today, John Connolly is in our studio to talk with us about Boston, its amazing citizens, and education at large, but particularly in Boston and Lawrence, Massachusetts. John Connolly famously ran for mayor of Boston against our current mayor, Marty Walsh, and before that served as a Boston city councilor at large from 2008 to 2014. As a city councilor, John spent four years as chair of the Committee on Education and oversaw an annual review of the Boston Public Schools budget. A former teacher, education has been central to Connolly's political campaigns and to his work in the private sector. He is the founder of both nonprofits, 1647 and School Facts, and he chairs the oversight board for Lawrence Public Schools, which is currently in state receivership. John graduated from Harvard University and received his JD from Boston College Law School. John, welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great that you're here. Um, So you served in political office in Boston for many years. And tell us a little bit about what you learned when you were out on the campaign trail and then in office. What did you what do you know now that you didn't know before you got into politics about the city? I think I, I think I really came to see that it is a city of neighborhoods and people would say that, but, but you would come to appreciate that different neighborhoods had different personalities, uh, mm-hmm. sort of as a, a collective and, and it, it adds a real unique, uh, flavor to Boston. I think the other piece is in terms of the great parts is you come to see all of the different resources that Boston has, and it really is a unique city because the educational institutions, the hospitals, the laboratories, mm. and um, and it draws people here, yeah. and it and it makes it a, a really exciting place. And and then I think the difficult piece is that I didn't necessarily see so clearly until mm. after I had been in office uh, for a while were the inequities um, that that really exist in a city with so much right. that it, that you can have such deep divides, um, and. And to realize that there are a lot of Bostonians who spend a lot of their lives in pain yeah. uh, and facing great challenges. And as you as you move around the city, one, it's it is it's a city of so many different stories and so many different people. But it, you can just stay in parts of the city that feel very much like you. And it's you know, and and then as you kind of and and never be exposed. Yep. to the other parts of the city. Like, it's amazing because it's all so close, actually. Yeah, I, I found it that same way. And, and yeah. when we, you know, when you look at it from a data perspective or whatever it is, I, I think you can actually, though, boil that down uh, from that emotional standpoint and just say it, it, it's oftentimes less than a mile right. that separates the trajectory of one child from another, right. the trajectory of one uh, adult from another. Right. Um, and it's like, le- it's less than a mile, but it's a world apart. It's a world apart. And how, yeah. how can that be true? And yet it's right. been demonstrated that, that it's absolutely true. Um, a lot of people talk about your work as city councilor and on the campaign trail as being very innovative in terms of drilling down into parts of the city and really exposing 
um, concerns and um, experiences that different families had. And you, at one point, did 40 multilingual listening sessions with families from every neighborhood across the city of Boston, which is extraordinary. And it was the first time anyone had ever done anything like that in the city, I think. Why did you do that? Well, I, I had uh, been, I think, less than a term into the city council. I was made chair of the education committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you want to be? Was that kind of where you yeah, wanted to I be? I did, and I was the vice chair. And in the city council structure, the vice chair doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, but the okay. chair uh, had to um, give up the post a, a less than halfway through my first term, and so I suddenly became the chair of education. Okay. Um, you know, I'd been a teacher for a few years. I had a passion around these issues, but um, I was sort of learning as we went there that one, I needed to talk to principals and teachers a lot to really kind of understand the difference between what the folks running the system tell you and what the folks in the schools tell you because it it doesn't always jive. But then at a certain point, it became apparent really thanks to a a few people around me that I needed to talk to the parents, Mm. needed to talk to the families. Why? More. Why was that not the bridge wasn't completely being made when you just would go in and talk? With I think a lot of times by talking to teachers and principals, you would learn what was really happening in the classroom, and that was so important. And mm. that you know how something was envisioned from the top wasn't necessarily the reality in the school. But then yeah. there was an even further reality, which was how was it being received by children and families, mm. and that wouldn't always jive. Um, and so talking to parents about their experiences. Um, really became critical to try to understand how to make policies work right. and make a difference. And um, and so the city decided to uh, evaluate their student assignment school transportation policy. Yeah. And at that point, uh, and that always touches a big nerve in Boston um, for good reasons. And yeah. so at that point, I, I sort of pulled a group in and said, like, I want to talk to the parents we never see. I want to mm-hmm. talk to the parents who we know send kids into this system, but that don't show up at a community meeting, don't come into the city council. I, I want to talk to those folks. How do you attract them to convene? So I just leaned on this group of people who I knew had reach into different neighborhoods and mm-hmm. different communities and said, like, I want to meet these folks. Can you help set something up for me? Yeah. And so it would literally be like I had met a uh, uh, Somali who ran a nonprofit um, in Roxbury for Somali youth. Uh-huh. I said, I want to meet Somali moms. Yeah. And so you got, got Somali moms around a table for me. And were, were you surprised at what you heard when you assembled folks? Yeah, really filled, filled in a lot of gaps for me and made yeah. me see things in, in different ways. And, yeah. um, and you would learn issues from a whole different perspective. And you would see parents at the schools that typically weren't doing well. And that was often be like the first time you'd meet a parent from those schools. Right, you'd actually see representation of a statistic. Yeah. The statistic is so easy to dismiss exactly. or not feel. Totally. And yeah. now you've got a real person right. and a real child right? and begin to get a real understanding of what brings them to whatever point they're at there with their child and, and that school. And that really changes the... The whole frame and i can think of some specific instances i can think we saw the numbers of children on the autism spectrum rising consistently and they like quadrupled inside of of 10 years Mm. i think partially due to better assessments but then Mm -hmm. you know possibly other reasons Mm -hmm. um and so i was trying to understand that i started to sit down with parents of, of children on the spectrum 
but they were by and large uh, parents who were more empowered, parents with a, a little bit more probably uh, economic power, mm-hmm. people more social mobility. But mm-hmm. it's funny, as I sit down with them, I would learn a lot, yeah. learn a lot about challenges facing their families and, and the school's ability or inability to meet their needs. But I would consistently hear from them. You know, my child goes into a classroom with a child whose parents don't speak English, mm-hmm. and they are getting you know, eaten alive in this, and they are missing out on everything. And so... Ask, well, can you get me to that parent? Like, oh, that's can you introduce so interesting. Me to those parents, and yeah, would try to connect the dots that way, and that would open up these different worlds. And it was like along those lines that you would learn that Boston Public Schools were on a really fast trajectory toward uh, having majority of the kids start as non-English speakers in the system. Mm-hmm. And what were we doing to get ready for that? And right. What were we doing with that large population already? Right. And, uh, and we're there today. It's, yep. it's now roughly half the system. And with the households that even the kids who may speak English um, with with some fluency, like they go back to households where the parents don't necessarily speak. And so right. like, what are we doing to reach those families? Right. Right? And so it was always just sort of layer after layer. But you had some strong results in this in terms of increased programming for English language learners. Yeah, I think we were able to redirect some resources yeah. by by like pointing this out and try to change some some pieces yeah. and uh, um, and hopefully do some good in it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think we've made enough progress on all of the issues that you identified in those hearings? No, yeah. I don't. I, I don't. I mean, and I think part of this is that we always have to push and there's always a tendency, I think, for bureaucracies, mm. and for politicians to, um, to, to try to protect themselves and protect the work that they're doing, which is often good, but it's really only when they can kind of put it all out there in the public square and talk about it and make people uncomfortable. I think it's really important to make elected officials uncomfortable and make the people who run cities uncomfortable. Uh, And that's how you get real change. Right, the friction. Yeah, and it doesn't make you popular when you're making people uncomfortable or it may make you popular with the parents but not with the people running the schools, whatever. But um, when we allow that sort of tendency for people to... Um, to to kind of roll without that public accountability, without the the discomfort. Yeah, uh, it's usually what kind of brings change to a halt. Yeah, yeah, I think you're completely right about that. So I, I was reading some articles that were written about you, and and I love <laughs> this particular I love this particular quote. I, I want you to comment on it. Um, so this is in a Globe article. It says, no one believes me, but I don't have any desire to run for governor or senator or another elected office. Mayor would have been a dream job for me. I love cities. And if I'm not mayor, I'm going to find a way to work in urban policy and schools. It's been my love for the city driving me. <laughs> and that's such a beautiful write, quote. They wrote that whole thing, huh? They wrote the whole thing. <laughs> I think you said it or you said yeah. something like it, right? And I mean, I haven't known you that long, but this, this quote feels so true. Yeah, what I what I think about you and what I know about you and no, your work, I, I, and I think it is, and I'm proud that it is. But um, and and people don't, I think, even still today believe me because you know I grew up in politics, so there was a, there were aspects of it that came naturally to me. Yeah, um, and I and I love following politics, and I believe in the importance of our right. elections and all and, and all of that. So that that is a big part of me, but I never had a burning desire to be president or senator or governor and and uh what i wanted to be was mayor yeah 
Um, because, because you love the city. Because mayors can get things done, and yeah. I love this city. And that and that was what drove me. And so it really was, if I couldn't be mayor, it was, for me, never going to be about figuring out what office I could run for. Do you think that's even more true today, that mayors, or do you think mayors yeah. are becoming more and more important? Yeah, I think you look at Washington, and, and it's a disaster area right now, yeah. and it's gridlock. Um, and it's two highly polarized sides and special interest groups that can basically force a status quo to prevail right. um, in the status quo being that you can't get anything done. Right. Uh, right. I think in, then you look at Massachusetts, like state legislature, it's really hard to get things done there too. It's yeah. like legislatures by nature. Mayors can get things done. Right. And mayors have to deliver because legislative bodies can debate big issues and they can pass legislation and make big differences, no doubt about it, when they act. But yeah. mayors have to deliver every day. That's right. They're and so proximate council, to yeah, their constituents. Yeah. And city councilors yeah. have to as well. Yeah, and, um, yeah. that's true. You know? yeah. Did you feel a lot of pressure when you were on city council? Um, I think there was like internally uh, created uh, pressure because you just knew anything that was happening, you would have to be ready and that things you know, change on, on a dime. And, yeah. um, I think about it from that context of sort of like for a mayor, um, you know, when there's a shooting, you know, when there's youth violence, when, when somebody, um, loses their life, like the mayor has got to be ready to deal with that in real time. Right. And the city council who lives in the district where that happens right. has to be able to deal with that in real time. It's people's real lives. Right. And then you take it to another level, which is, you know, when the when the water main breaks and floods, you know, center street, right. Um, you gotta be ready to deal with that and right. the local businesses losing their power and right. all of that. But I think it grounds city officials and yeah. keeps them close to the people. And, yeah. you know, I met a lot of great state reps and state senators while I was, uh, in political office who do great work, but yeah. I do think there's an aspect of those jobs where, they're going to have to debate big policies. Like they'll take votes on the death penalty or, or, or big issues that matter. But there's a, a, a tendency in that job that it can pull you away from your district, away from your people. Sure. Um, and, and that's just the nature of that one. Yeah. The city ones, if you're not out there every day with your sleeves rolled up. Yeah, you um, have to be in it. Yeah, yeah. Do you worry at all? We, we, we were told recently that um, there was a study that showed that democracy is becoming less important to younger Americans. I don't know if you've heard that or do you, yeah, do you no, worry that democracy is becoming less important? Yeah, to so I, I saw that study and it really yeah. concerned me because it's sort of um, a testament to the death of civics and, yeah. and education yeah. and how important that is. And yeah, I do really worry about that because I think there is a part about uh, history, social studies and civics education that is, is teaching you that it's about more than yourself and right. that you have a responsibility to your community, not a choice, but a responsibility. Right. And I think that is what we're losing. Yeah. And, uh, and that can stand to have, you know, devastating consequences. Devastating consequences. We, um, yeah, especially if we're already, if it's already easy enough to ignore the other Boston or the other Bostons. If, if also we're starting to not value democracy, then it becomes very problematic. When, when you think about education, do you think there are two systems in the city of Boston? Yeah, I think, th I think absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think there's the system where my kids wake up, mm -hmm. um, in which one, you have a choice off the bat, are you going to go into Boston public schools or not? And when you do go into Boston public schools, you're likely going to go in with families with social and economic mobility who can bring resources to bear in school and also get their kids 
essentials outside of school mm -hmm. and those kids will will do well and then there is again this like sort of one mile away from us right and less in certain cases a kid could be born in uh, High Point Village or Archdale uh, housing in Roslindale mm -hmm. um, you know place places my kids can walk to uh, and that child's not gonna have a choice about where they go right uh, and they're gonna walk into a school um, where they're just not going to get the same opportunities and it can range on everything from academic quality mm -hmm. uh, to extracurricular options mm -hmm. uh, to then when they exit that school, walking back into a household that doesn't have economic or social mobility that families, you know, less than a mile away have. Right. Uh, and all of those things become great barriers to creating opportunity and success. And so I do. Yeah, I think it's a two tiered um, system and experience for families in the city. Your work, the work that you're doing, the the nonprofits that you've started, the work that you're doing, Lawrence, would suggest that you believe, though, that change can happen. Are you optimistic that, yeah. that if the right things were aligned, that change could happen for that would unify the two systems and make them more one system? I do. I do believe that. And I think my work and my experiences and, and more than I think watching other mm -hmm. people who are invested and other people who uh, are trying to change things. Uh, tells me that we can do a lot better and we can break down these barriers. But yeah. more than anything, where it takes me is not to an education policy or an education side of the fence. It takes me to this place that says, if you empower the voices of families, yeah. uh, that is the key to unlocking all of these problems. And if we listen to families, and particularly the families who are disempowered and don't traditionally have voice, mm -hmm. um, that that gets us a long way toward breaking down these barriers. So you think step one is um, helping them feel heard and hearing them. No, so not necessarily needing to have all of the answers at the beginning, but to hearing them, potentially hearing answers from them and then shaping them kind of. Yep. And I would say they have the answers. You would. Yeah. Because families know what they want for their children. Right. It's oftentimes more a question of, not knowing how to get what they want or not being able to access right. what it is that they want for right. their children. And that there's a lot of common ground in those places. And there are critical differences like language barrier. I mean, so it comes right. down to some simple things like language barrier can just be a mammoth like obstacle for families. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but yeah, no, I think if you, if you listen, yeah. um, the answers can become, apparent and it's then and and if you empower families to have the kind of control and voice mm -hmm. um that for mm -hmm. families who are naturally empowered mm -hmm. um yeah you can change so much of this so you it, it, that it obligates the city and the system to then respond yeah yeah exactly because yeah. when an empowered parent walks into their school huh. on an issue and says we want X, Y, or Z. Right. As long as it's a reasonable request, right. typically, right. they get it. They have to get it right. Right. And and we need to make that true for all families. Right. Um, Do you uh, the so the population, the student population in the city of Boston is, has been shrinking and continues to be shrinking. Right. Do, does that have positive or negative effects on our school system? Well, I think it, overall it's. It's a negative effect because we are not managing the schools to the size of the system. Mm -hmm. And that means that what we're doing is spreading resources thin mm -hmm. uh, and we're not adapting right. 
Um, and right. that, that's what's really hurting. So ultimately, it doesn't matter if we have 100,000 kids or 50,000 kids. The mm-hmm. question is, are we deploying, deploying the resources right. in ways that give those kids the most opportunity? Right. So as the school system shrinks, potentially 125 buildings open every day is not the answer. But yeah. And, right? I, and those and are big, those are big issues, right? Because as soon as yeah, you say the word school closing, doubt, yeah, with that, the, right. like that triggers right. all sorts of emotional, right. you know, difficult issues and discussions. So yeah. again, I think listening and having discussions yeah. matters there, but I don't think it can be denied. And I was talking to some folks about this the other day that mm-hmm. one of the results of um, not aligning our resources to the number of students is that we spread staff thin right. across schools so that then what you get is more schools can't have specialists. Right. More schools can't right. bulk up. And what we want to strive for, I think, is a vision of fully staffed, full service schools right. for every child right. rather than thinly staffed, under enrolled schools for every child. So, and why is, why is coming up with a strategic plan that says, we're going we're going to shift the number of schools like this to match the population and we're going to s- super load them with services so each child will have access to more and better services why why doesn't that strategic planning get done and then over articulated to families so that families feel confident about this notion of a school closing right. so i would say politics is the number one reason okay. that um the bureaucracy and the uh, constituencies mm-hmm. around our school have outsized voice where families have, uh, you know, an underdeveloped voice. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes, uh, uh, creates a, a big barrier. And then second is I, I don't think information and facts get to people about these issues. And I think right. that's like vitally important um, because what happens is the stories are told by people with vested interests. And and that's not coded language for any group, okay? I put that on all sides of the education debate. Right. And that is that our ed reformers, unions, bureaucracy, the managers, the politicians, they all have vested interests mm-hmm. in how the story is told. And I think you, so then families never get the full story. The real facts. Okay, so now this is this is a an unbelievable it's almost like you planned it transition. <laughs> To, not that I'm Jimmy Kimmel, but that for a little game that I want to play. And then I want to talk about the the work that your latest nonprofit is doing. So this game is called Fact or Fiction, mm-hmm. and you have to call it. I'm going to read you a statement, and you're going to tell me whether or not it's a okay. fact. <laughs> okay, number one. You ready? Yep. Only 14 BPS high schools are accredited. Graduation rates for these schools are in the bottom third of all urban districts in the state. Fact. That is a fact. What does that mean for our students that only 14 of the high schools in our system are accredited? So this is this is one where it really drives me crazy because accreditation is a baseline standard. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't mean you're doing great. To like be how accredited. are we not hanging it our heads means, in embarrassment? It means you're hitting the baseline of what every school should have. Yeah. Um, and for some it's about performance and for others it's about facilities that are way out of date. And then mm-hmm. for many it's a combo, but like this is a, a, a clear sign of decades mm-hmm. of mismanagement mm-hmm. around schools. Mm-hmm. And then our graduation rates are in the bottom third but of urban districts. So that's comparing us to the other cities yep. in the state. Yep. 
And that, that always brings you to this place where we often celebrate urban schools that do well, yeah. but then they're even still behind suburban counterparts. But this is like a testament of not even yeah. being, yeah. you know, do, doing well for urban schools. I, I think what we want to strive for is to I mean, we're one of the wealthiest cities well. in the country. Yeah, this yeah. is insane. Yeah. That, that this is, this is, we're okay with this. Yeah. We're full and, of- and you can look around, like there's just all sorts of like little innovative pieces that happen other places in the country that mm-hmm. Boston is ripe for. But like there's been new school construction done in partnership with major institutions in other cities where you'll mm-hmm. have like a, a, an aeronautics school built mm-hmm. on the campus of a college or university, but that is attended by public school students, uh, you know, that, I mean, the Boston is ripe to address these issues right. through creative partnerships, right. but we don't do it. And plus we know that when those things happen and kids are getting college credits in addition to their high school degree, yeah. they're much more likely to go to no college and to graduate from college. All right. We're moving on to fact or fiction. Number two, two thirds of Boston public school, high school graduates do not graduate from college within six years. Fact. That is also a fact. So, and exam schools make up a large percentage of yeah, the one third. So that is that is another clear representation of the two Bostons. Yeah. Um, you look at the exam schools, and they do not overall look like the majority of Boston kids. Yeah. And they send kids to college. Well, over ninety percent of the kids who will graduate within six years. Right. In particular, uh, BLS, the majority of kids are white and Asian. Yep. and B- Even though there's a, they're a huge minority yep, in, exactly. in the city. Yeah, without a doubt. And, yeah. B- and BLA, more diverse, more reflective mm-hmm. of Boston, but still not reflective of, of the bulk of kids. In fact, mm-hmm. the O'Brien, which uh, is often, I think, the underappreciated mm. exam school, is the one that, that looks most like the majority of Boston kids. But all three of these exam schools have... Uh, taking the highest achievers. Right. Um, all the way through from, all, from yeah. what, fourth grade. But when you look at the rest of those schools, yeah. um, you can say two thirds don't finish college within six years. If you took the exam schools out, that number, it's, it's it, it, I mean, it's, it's pitiful. almost none. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, okay. Number three, all BPS high schools have the same graduation requirements and standards. Fiction. That is fiction. That is fiction. <laughs> and we did, we talked to Paul Revel about MassCore. Do you think we should adopt MassCore? Do you think we should adopt some set of standards that go across all high schools? I think we should adopt MassCore. Mm-hmm. Again, that is a baseline right. competency-based, you know, uh, or baseline competency measure in terms of like sort of the bare minimums that right. you've got to be doing to know that your kids are prepared to go to college when they exit the system. My concern here is that BPS is going to develop their own set of standards, which almost certainly will be wa- a watered down version of mass core. Right. Laura Perel said the words BPS core. Yeah. As if and, that's and, a thing. Yeah. Right. And what, why that is, is so that we can have higher graduation rates because right. we don't want to take. So again, this would go back to, it's important to be in the public square and make public officials feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. so that they will deliver. Mm-hmm. And when we don't do that, you get the status quo. This is a classic case. So graduation rates in a lot of ways changed the way we look at education and right. it gave people real information about what was sort of the end of the line for our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and now BPS sees that 
they were, you know, the graduation rates were a mess, so they have boosted them up. But part of the ways they did that was by having no clear set of graduation standards at high schools so that now our graduation rates look really good, but right. it is really clear that we send a lot of kids off to college who are not prepared. And we, and we know that because we send them into lots of schools where they're doing remedial work yeah. and having to pay for it. Yep. And so now you're paying for, you're paying college prices for high right. school education. And right. this is what we set so many of our poorest kids up for. And then they don't graduate in yeah. six years per our last. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, it becomes a vicious circle. And it's about nothing more than just trying to make sure that we are not embarrassed about our graduation rates and took a real hard look at maybe some drastic changes yeah. that need to be made for kids. So that kind of leads to the next uh, question, which uh, here's a, here's the statement close to 90% of parents believe that their child is performing at or above grade level when testing shows that actually only about a third of these students are performing at grade level. Is that a, you're nodding your head, but is it a fact or is that fiction? Is that, that's a fact, I believe. That's right? a fact. Yeah. yeah. 90% of parents yeah. believe that their child is performing at grade level. Yep. And only a third yeah. of them are actually performing at grade level. And I mean, it goes right back to your point about standards, right? Like, I mean, like, because if I'm a kid in the school system, I, my likelihood of graduating from college is really low if I'm not in one of the exam schools. We just covered that. Yeah. And, and yet, as a parent, if I don't, understand that yeah then how am i helping my kid through the school and when, so there, there's been a lot of research done there around too right. about delivering messages to right. parents and what comes through and what doesn't but there, this goes i think to a deeper point of just a um fundamental inability to um for schools to understand that it's incumbent on them to communicate with families. Yeah, and it's almost like I was reading last night a study that said the report cards that we're giving to families uh, are so complicated that it's hard to decipher actual meaning yeah, what, out what of What does them. any of it mean? And so yeah. kind of you look at these report cards and people are translating them into, oh, my kid is doing fine because I'm not hearing from the teacher otherwise. Right. And this appears to be an okay report card. Yeah. And so I'm not worrying. Yeah. So, so these facts and other school facts are a part of what you're doing Yes, in a new nonprofit that you created called School Facts. School Facts Boston. So, so I love School Facts. Um, I, I read all of them and rewatched all of the videos last night. But <laughs> Thank so, you. Right? But so, and, so, and your point is, I think, is, is making sure that every family in the city of Boston knows those facts. And I think also is moved by them. And feels like they can do something about them. Right. I mean, that, talk a little that, bit about yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. And so start with this place that we want families to be informed. Mm -hmm. um, and we are trying really hard to make sure that we are conveying fact-based information and let families make up their minds from there. Mm -hmm. I'd rather have all the families in the room and a lot of disagreement mm -hmm then only have one subset of families who all agree with each other in the room. Um, I tend to think we can actually solve things if you get people who disagree in the room, have them talk to each other, and start by delivering facts around That's a these crazy key idea, issues. John. That sounds like democracy. Yeah, I, I, I know, right? radical, yeah. radical thing. But that's what we're going for, because I would say right now families largely aren't fully informed when it comes to issues mm -hmm. um, around our schools. Mm -hmm. um, and that dialogue is missing because it's such a polarized uh, place, and and so we want we want to bring families together through facts. But yes, I think to the to your other point there, 
we try through our content to tell, to deliver these facts in compelling ways. Right. Because one, we want you to see how on a macro, a macro issue can impact an individual child or an individual family. Uh, and, and two, we don't want to put you to sleep. We want you to get right. the facts that, um, make it easy to, to digest. Exactly. What, what do you think it. would happen if kids got a hold of these facts? Uh, I think that is another like, you know, uh, game changing potential. And some of the work we've just begun to do involves pulling students yeah. in. Cause I this. would think they would think that they've been duped. Uh, yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. And, yeah. um, I think kids can look at things too in, in fresh ways that also helps again, inform these perspectives. But yeah, no, I, when I've had conversations with students and talked, uh, you know, about the opportunity divide and the achievement gap, mm. um, you get a sense that it's often hidden from them. Right. Um, that there's a lot of worry about how devastating it may be to tell um, a, a poor kid of color in the city about achievement gap and an opportunity divide. But I have found when you have had those conversations that these kids are already very aware yeah. of all the impediments they face in this world about what a factor race is, the right. equity divide. They just would put it in much more personal terms. Mm-hmm. And only when you kind of engage in that conversation can you get any sense of where they feel mm-hmm. that change is needed and what could make a difference but in their lives. I think they also, from everything that I've read and understand, they also buy into this notion that I, too, can go to college. And in fact, that may be the thing that changes the trajectory of my life. And yet they're kind of fed the same set of information that their parents are I'm not sure that it's very far off, the 90% of parents who believe that their students are at or, mm-hmm. um, or b- above grade level. It's kind of not till you hit high school and 10th grade where you start to have conversations about whether or not you're going to college. And it's oftentimes my understanding that that's when kids find out they're not on yeah. the right trajectory. And, so, and I think we see some clear pieces on this as well. So one is the sort of number one predictor of ultimate success in school and, mm. and going to college yeah. um, is, is where the family sets it as an expectation mm-hmm. um, and a belief. So then again, a lot's going to go there to whether the parent believes it can happen or not and what right. are we doing to convey that. Right. And then number two will be adults in school along your pathway right. who um, basically put it on your radar and show you what you have to, to do and provide support. And you've to, got to be a confident, confident adult at some point to intercede and say, hey, you know what? You're not on a path. Right. Right. And, yep. and to kind of help take yeah. the responsibility yep. for resetting the path. And if we don't have enough bold, confident players in the system, yep. then the kids are going to keep moving through the system without understanding. And so I'll, let me chime in on two points here. So one, I think we have learned a lot and seen that uh, economic mobility Mm-hmm. plays a huge role here. And we consistently see that oftentimes leaving college or not even mm-hmm. enrolling will come down to financial questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there's a lot that's got to be done around that. We've seen programs around college savings and pieces like that. But this is a major issue. Um, and this is this is that I just can't afford to live while yeah. I'm in school. Because Pell Grants and other things may help me pay for yeah. credits. Yep. But I need to pay for food and I need somewhere to sleep at night and I need to pay for my books. Exactly. And oftentimes you got a family right. that also has 
feels financial pressure and that may necessitate choices that you need to make. And right. so, you know, that is this, um, uh, huge dimension that I think we don't, um, that we don't always, uh, understand. Right. Um, and then I, I think there is, uh, this other aspect where, um, guidance counselors mm. and you talked about mental health counselors, unfilled positions. Yeah. If we ever really look closely and the globe did a series earlier on this earlier this year, but, um, if we look at the lack of guidance counselors and the many, many ways we could solve that, um, that's a huge issue, but that like, that is a statement of our priorities and whether it's important to us that kids go to college or not. That's a great point. It's a great point. Um, why is this work so important to you? I, you know, I ask myself that a lot, <laughs> but, uh, look, I grew up in Boston. I grew up in Roslindale. Yeah. I had every opportunity afforded to me. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in the middle of a divided city, um, that was really divided around, uh, education, race and equity. Um, and at that time it was a Boston that was falling apart. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of came of age at a time when Boston was resuscitated and had a boom that continues through to today. Yeah. Um, and it was great to see Boston thrive and continue to thrive, but I feel the one piece that hasn't changed is um, making sure that Boston succeeds for everyone. Right. Uh, and so I love the city. I love living here. Um, but that's the thing that just will always stick stick in my uh, gut as, as not okay. And so it's something where I really try to direct my energy. Like yeah. that, that's what fuels me. I, I feel the same way that you do that, that um, latest report showing the um, growth and value of all yeah. parts of the city it is such a wonderful thing to think about. And it scares the daylights out of me as well, because it becomes more and more unaffordable for everyone who's made the city a great city. Yeah, it's a have, or it's a, it becomes a haves and have nots. And, right. Yeah. And, and it's, we should be the lead, I and mean, we've been the leaders since the, right, the country was established, and we should be the leaders around this, about how do you preserve this amazing citizenship that, you know, is, is all of Boston, and um, not let it get moved out just because we, we are a successful city. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and that is, that is the... Uh, the huge challenge that we face right now. Yeah. And when it comes to our schools, um, you know, we can afford a lot without a doubt. Right. Like their schools are actually relatively speaking, you know, very stable from a fiscal standpoint. And right. we certainly can put a lot more money in them. And I think we hear, you know, rumors now that there will be a big investment in our schools coming, right. um, you know, in the new year. Right. I think that's great as a Boston public school parent. I think that's great. My worry will always be, though, um, that we don't spend it the right way. Right. Uh, Which is that, the most important thing. Yeah. And yeah. that we don't make the systemic changes that are needed yeah. to maximize that investment. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, the Boston story, like the ton of opportunity, a ton of resources. And sometimes we can be our own worst enemy right. um, in making sure that that reaches everyone. And you're, you're seeing the opposite side of the spectrum because you're overseeing the board that is the receiver for Lawrence Public Schools right yep. now. Yeah. And so which was taken into receivership um, by the state. How many years ago? 
five years now? Uh, a little longer than that, okay. actually. So um, we go back to, it's about 10 years now. 10 years, okay. Yeah. And so it's gone through turnaround. It's stabilized in a, in a totally different state, right? Yeah, it went from, from the worst uh, district in the state, I think, you know, and if not the worst, one of the one of the three worst to mm-hmm. um, to uh, a stable urban system that has you know that outperforms just about every city. It's amazing. Um, so the they're state. not in the bottom third. No, no. I mean, listen, we we're not perfect there, and we certainly have our, our struggles. So we have a few schools that that do struggle in that. But overall, yeah, top to bottom, if you look. At Lawrence, in comparison to Boston, I don't really think there is a comparison. Yeah, so interesting. So, what what were what are the things that made it succeed? Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, one piece that just should be known is it's a lot smaller, and I think sure. that matters. But it's also a lot poorer, mm-hmm. um, with a lot less resources mm-hmm. that can be brought to bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that now Commissioner Riley went into Lawrence as the first uh, receiver superintendent, and right. um, he had a he had a pretty you know, simple plan there was, you know, he went and he recruited great principals, which included mm-hmm. some principals who were already there. Yeah. Um, they, you know, great principals empowered good teachers. Yeah. And so we saw a lot of that, but he also put uh, a real emphasis on investing in arts and music. Okay. Um, and he knew he was going to be judged by test scores. Yeah. He put the investment in arts and music. Yeah. He knew that you know, one, one leads to the other. He knew the alignment. And yeah, he got it. And he knew that yep. that also is what makes kids get excited to go to school. What makes mm-hmm. families excited to send their kids to school. And, uh, and so he put a real priority on enrichment, mm-hmm. um, and then built, I think, partnerships with, uh, community there that were smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and they really did great things and saw a lot of great things happen, which, uh, many of which continue through to today. Mm-hmm. And I will be you know absolutely honest because again I think this is important. It's important that we feel uncomfortable in Lawrence a lot yeah. to keep this going. And well, it's got to be hard, yeah, right? Because the, it's like the na- like the nature of the beast is to go back. Yeah, to it's like to something that right, there's so to much just more gravitate back to right. that comfortable like status quo that doesn't do anything. Yeah, and for how kids do you create? I think yeah, about this all the so time. How do you create a new status quo? Exactly. And, and so I, I think, and I think that just comes down to like, you have to make the people in charge uncomfortable. Like, and mm-hmm. that, so in Lawrence, that's me. Like, yeah. I, I want to be made uncomfortable. I want to make the superintendent uncomfortable. Yeah. Like I want us to really confront, and we've got a lot of challenges there. Like our high school doesn't do what it needs to. Mm-hmm. Now I'm really proud that we've trailblazed early college there for the state. Yeah. Uh, I love our Enlace program, which I think is the best program in the state for newcomers. It's our uh, program within the high school for newcomers. And in Lawrence, um, we just have countless kids who are coming, um, Ah. you know, from... Gateway City. Yeah. And they're coming from, you know, all places, but we know like large Dominican community, large Puerto Rican community, and they are coming um, uh, to Lawrence and they have nothing and they're showing up you know, um, day one, they're the classic interrupted learner yeah. and they don't speak a word of English and they go into our Enlace program. And I think it's one of the best newcomer academies, uh, in the country. And what is it? Great, what makes it great so work. great? We have a great school leader there. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the key. That's the key. And, um, and she just does amazing work and she, if she were here, she would say, it's not me, it's my teachers. Yeah. And that's true. Um, uh, but they build a real community there and they do amazing work. Proud of that. Proud of, uh, the early college work that we've trailblazed, but our high school still has 
a lot of work to do and work we're not doing right by kids uh, and all of that. And that's the stuff I mean, like we have to have these uncomfortable conversations yeah. if we want to keep pushing totally. Lawrence forward. Totally. And is that, is that because actually to make sure that every student is successful, there has to be work at the intersection of what the city is responsible for and what the school system is responsible yeah, for? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I serve, the mayor serves on the board, on mm -hmm. the receivership board up there with me. And I think he's very committed uh, to those things. But like, yeah, that is, that, that is vital. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got partnerships with Northern Essex Community College, with Merrimack College, like these are great partners to have, but I come from this Boston context. Yeah. Um, and it really is something to see, like Lawrence does, just doesn't have the resources, but has made better progress because they have confronted the systemic issues more often than not. Yeah. That Boston won't confront. So is that just a matter of feeling safe doing it? Yeah. I wish I knew the exact answer to yeah. that. But, um, but it but happens. I think, yeah. And I think some of it is just may just be political circumstance, political opportunity, mm -hmm. um, luck. I don't know, but, yeah. um, but it's happened in Lawrence. It, it hasn't in Boston. And I think it, it keeps Boston behind. Now that said, yeah, I think Lawrence has a long way to go and, if we really want to get it out of just being the best city, but get it to a place where the opportunity, you know, is that of any place, yeah. um, we have to do eons better with family engagement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have to really make families trust um, Lawrence by listening to them and building relationships with them. And mm -hmm. I would say yeah. that's the challenge for Boston. That's the challenge for Lawrence. That's the challenge for all of these cities. We think the answer is in test scores and instruction but the answer is actually in family engagement. Yeah. And I would almost guarantee if you do it the right way, that'll give you the test scores you want. Yeah. Um, but it's the family engagement that will change the dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not impossible. No, no. But it changes. It, it requires a massive change in uh, approach and yeah. mindset. A more humble approach, I would imagine. Way more humble. Yeah, yeah. that's a great word for it. Um, and, and uh like aggressive humility, like yeah. extreme humility. Yeah. Um, because you have to, you actually have to look at that mom who doesn't speak English, yeah. lives in poverty, doesn't have the education that you've had. And you have to say, she knows more than me about what is best for her child and right. her community. Right. Um, and that's, that's a massive shift that has to take place. And I, and I really think we struggle with that across education right now. Yeah. Such a good point. So if you have one wish for the city, that'll just, take us to or keep us on a trajectory that's positive, what is it? Uh, that, that wish would be to have a, a school system um, that views itself in service of families and views families as uh, equals and the owners of the system. Yeah. And that's all, all families. And I really think, I really believe that yeah. can change the dynamic. I just think like we've got systems and institutions that have been set up to do the exact opposite. And so that's what, why it's so hard for us to confront, confront it and change it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you do in the city. Thank you for being such a huge fan of it. And thank you for joining us. No, today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And th thanks for all the, uh, work you do. And, um, it, it was great to hear that quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, John. Thanks.
Thank you for joining my conversation with John Connolly. I love that his focus is on giving families and students the data that they need to make great choices. His point of view is an important one. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.